On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group talks to Mark Anthony Kay of Project Gemini. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this special edition of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Paul Zotter and Ken Gregory as we welcome friend of the Palaver Mark Anthony Kay of Project Gemini to discuss the latest release in the year 3073, Book 3. Still do it on Saturday morning. That's not so bad. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. Good job. <laughs> Mark, happy new year. Welcome back to the show, my friend. It's been, uh, gosh, it's been a couple months. The end of 2021, I don't know how it was for you, but for us, it was kind of crazy and things kind of went sideways a little bit and whatnot. But hey, uh, glad yeah. glad to have you here and glad to be talking about this this new release. This is great stuff. Uh, thank you, guys. Happy New Year. Hope you guys all had a fantastic holiday season. Yeah, the end of the year was pretty crazy for me as well. A lot of stuff that happened, uh, you know, good and bad. Uh, but, you know, let's keep it on the positive side of things. Uh, speaking of positive, I, I'm, I'm freezing my ass off here in Canada as we have minus 21 <laughs> here. Uh, yeah. You know, that, the first part for the course, uh, the, the only good thing, and I was speaking to some of my family members about this earlier, is that now that I've endured the minus 21 night with the minus 30 wind chill, uh, it can only feel warmer from here. So that's, that's true. A, that's a good thing. Not right. to make you feel bad, but here in Texas, it was 71 <laughs> Fahrenheit yesterday. Just, mm. just saying. <laughs> You're killing me. <laughs> there, there are some advantages to living in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, many I can I can assume so, but yeah. So it's it's been an interesting uh, last couple of months, and looking forward to twenty twenty two, and uh, you know, starting with the uh, I guess this album coming out. Yeah, this is uh, so. Mm. Uh, this is the 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 third in the trilogy in the year thirty seventy three book three. We've had the opportunity to you know talk to you previously about the the other two parts to this. And uh, do we have at this point a a solid release date? Do we know when physical January? Copies yeah, January twenty first. The, the the digital version comes out on Bandcamp. Uh, before that, uh, sometime soon, actually this coming week, I will start the pre order for the CDs. Sweet. Uh, and I will also be most likely starting the pre order of the vinyl shortly after, because as you all know, uh, the wait times for the vinyl has increased so the sooner i get this started the sooner you know people will get it into their hands and when i mean sooner i mean you know hopefully you know quicker than 11 months or something like that you know yeah i'm, I'm happy to wait 11 months uh, i love <laughs> i love all my project gemini vinyl so uh i'll wait as long as it takes yeah, yeah. well i mean hopefully it doesn't take that long sorry paul go ahead no i was gonna say i think i think the weather is is holding up the uh the canadian mail service as well <laughs> Um, I, I ordered something from Devin Townsend, uh, probably around, you know, our American Thanksgiving was shipped out like, I don't know, December 10th or something like that. And I'm still, I'm still waiting for it. And I don't think, I don't think his headquarters is too far from, from you, Mark, is it? I, he's not like way out in like, you know, he's not out like on the West coast or anything. Yeah, he is, is he? he's BC. Oh, is he's he? BC. Okay. Well, maybe he's total West coast, but still he's in right. Canada. So, I mean, I, I feel like it's it's traveling dog sled to um well, to the border. Po possibly, let's put it this way: I sent Joe Bailey and uh, Steve Holland, the guy who does the artwork for the Dark Monarchy stuff, Christmas cards, and Steve messaged me yesterday: "Hey, I got your Christmas card." So <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> I like how we're typical Americans, and we think that you know Rush, Devin Townsend. And uh, the weekend, oh, but he does. Super Bowl opener the weekend. <laughs> uh, I, I have actually, you know, talked with and hung out with Devin Townsend. It's, you know, not that far off, but 
not like right. I'm on speed dial or anything. Name dropper. <laughs> <laughs> Lots to talk about. Lots. But before we before we dive into you know the 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 new release, Mark. There's just a couple things that that I was thinking about. You know, when book three comes out, I mean, you can't help but just you know sit down one day and listen to book one, book two, and book three in in sequential order. And as I was doing that, I I was just like, holy crap! Mark has released like a ton of stuff, and I'm you know going through since 2017. It's just been an onslaught. Yep. of project gemini dark monarchy um you've done christmas cds you've had a couple of other side projects so i'm just curious like overall right like what what drives you to create at at this at this pace and and where do you find your inspiration from to to you know continuously create and produce these things the the music end of it uh comes Sort of simply, I mean, I've kind of convinced myself throughout the years to just not write with something, you know, predestined in my mind. Like, this is going to be a sort of record like this. No, I'm just going to go in, turn on my click track, you know, think of some random tempos. Like, okay, 146 sounds good. Let's try that today. And just put in my guitar. Or lately, it's been plug in my keyboard here and just noodle and if something comes out of it, then, you know, I'm, I'm happy. Now, the great thing about the way I have things set up for myself now is that if I write something and it doesn't sound like something I would, I could see myself doing in Project Gemini, oh, maybe it'll be good for Dark Monarchy. Oh, maybe it'll be good for Mark Anthony K in the side, and, you know, the, 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 what's it called? The Mark Anthony K in the Lower Third Collective, that's it. Uh, and, you know what I mean? Like, so I don't go in now anymore with that sort of, pressure on my shoulders saying that I have to write something for Project Gemini and it has to be like this or that. I I just write. If it comes out good, great. If not, then it'll it'll find a home somewhere else. Now, for this record, uh, it was pretty simple. I just kind of had something in mind anyways of how to kind of resolve it. So that kind of helped. But overall, I mean, I've been writing songs for a very long time. I was thinking about this myself, actually. 16 years old was the very first time I went into the recording studio and recorded a four-song demo with my ba- my bandmates when I was 16. Nice. So it's been a long time doing this, like over 20 years, easy. So, you know, writing songs is not really the hard part. Musically, lyrically, of course, that might be a little bit more challenging because, you know, I, I like to write stuff that has some sort of substance to it. I'm not about, hey, baby, let's go out to the car and make love in the backseat or anything like that. <laughs> I, I, I'm more, you know, topics about things that happen in the world or things that happen to me personally. So that takes a little bit more skill or maybe a little bit more thinking involved. Nice. And then and then sort of a bolt-on to that, we, we we have documented, I mean, you've documented in so many places, but we've certainly talked about it here you are an avid music collector avid vinyl collector how how does that affect your approach to maybe not so much the creative aspect of it but how does that uh, that affect your approach to putting all of this together and and releasing things well it, it definitely has an impact i mean i've i've been on and still sort of am not as not as crazily but i've been on my marillion kick of getting all these 12 inch singles and you know, trying to find their albums. And now as I'm getting out of the fish era, thinking to myself, well, now that I'm out of the classic era into the more current, more current stuff or more current era should be much easier to get this stuff. Well, oh boy, was I wrong? Like afraid <laughs> of sunlight is like $3,000 for a vinyl, you know? So it's what? like in- insane prices <laughs> for some of these albums on vinyl, you know, whereas the fish stuff you can get it for, you know, fair prices and there's a lot of it available, but it's just mainly because the era that Hogarth came in was not very vinyl friendly. So there wasn't as much of it made and there's, mm-hmm. you know, less of it available to buy. So of course it's going to be more expensive, but it does impact me a lot because, you know, when I buy certain records or I get a certain album, I sit down and listen to it. And, you know, if I, if it really affects me well, then it might creep into the writing somehow. I mean, I mean, I remember when I got, a. uh, you know, I got a Zappa record just the other week and uh, I put it on and, you know, 
of course, some crazy ideas start floating into your head. Now, whether I use them or not, who knows? But, you know, it's music definitely affects me in that way. You know, I can go back and pull out some Rush albums, listen to it, and all of a sudden I have some crazy Taurus bass pedal ideas that came that I didn't have before, you know. So the collecting part, I love doing it. Uh, I still do it a lot. Uh, I find, though, that I'm being a little bit more selective now because I'm up there like about 900 albums in my collection now. So I don't have as many that are on my wanted list anymore, but it, it does affect it. I mean, you, it, it has to to some degree. As a quick aside, I don't know if you ever listened to the Bob Lefses podcast, but he's had some uh, great discussions with with a lot of folks. But, you know, what comes to mind for me is Stephen Wilson and his recent interview with Chris Kimsey. And there's this conversation that's sort of ongoing around vinyl and whether things that are, uh, you know, recorded digitally should even go to vinyl, right? Mm. Because, you know, and I think everybody has a different opinion. I'm curious, do you, do you think about that? Like when, like when you think about bit rates and the way you're recording things, you know, are, are you considering, well, this could go on vinyl, so I want to make sure I, I, I do this or do that, or are there any concessions or things that you do while you're creating to th- just in case this ends up on vinyl? The funny thing is, I think I do less concessions when I think about vinyl than I do to CD because vinyl is a medium where if you put it on and you hear, <laughs> you know, it's not unexpected. Okay. Like, I mean, it's vinyl. It's supposed to have a, some anomaly here and there. You know, it's gotten a lot better, granted that it's a lot cleaner sounding overall. And, you know, the vinyl sounds like vinyl does. It's a bit warmer. Uh, you know, th- it's it's not as abrasive at the upper end as a CD could be, but you know there's there's still that sort of flexibility. I think that if you have a slightly, you know, muddier well not muddier but you know something a little bit more hairier or stuff like that mm. in there, it'll still translate okay on vinyl. Whereas if you have the absolute unforgiving digital medium of where every little breath and sneeze or chair creek can be audible on it that's where i take a little bit more time Mm. and effort now of course i'm not doing separate recordings for vinyl or in cd it's still it's the same thing but i do master them differently for each Mm -hmm. thing my god that's time consuming and potentially expensive well not if you do it yourself right (laughs) (laughs) which is why you were determined i'm sure you were determined years ago to learn all of this after paying someone else to do it (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) You're right about that. What was the worst bill? What was the worst experience you had with paying someone but not getting precisely what you wanted? Well, there's been there's been a few times early on where we went and did some like the mixing, especially the mastering, not so much because once you have the mixes the way you want, mastering is just kind of like fine tuning, in my opinion, yeah. right? The mixing, there's been times where we've gone back and had songs and whole albums remixed numerous times where it got into the several thousand dollars just to get a record done. And that was back in the day. And that was for, you know, guys that were working jobs that weren't exactly the highest paying jobs either. Yeah. That's how you learn. <laughs> yeah. Believe me. And I learned a lot. I was sitting beside the guy at the table and watching him. Why did he do that? Why did you turn, why did you turn down the mid range on that kick drum so much? Well, you know, because you don't want it competing with the bass guitar. Why don't I want it? You know, all these questions started coming up. And believe me, I wrote it down a lot. I I memorized it a lot. And it all helps in the end. But now with YouTube, you know, all those questions can be answered within a little click here and there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. It's funny you should say that. I have have a very fractured relationship with YouTube. And any (laughs) time I ask either of these two guys questions about, hey, how do I do this? Or how would this be done? Literally within like usually two minutes, sometimes up to 30, Paul will provide <laughs> me like three YouTube links. And I'm like, fucking YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> but it is it is very helpful. So as long yes. as I don't have to find this stuff, it's great. 
Okay, so, I know we have to dig into the, the actual recording, but, but I'm just going to ask, are you chomping at the bit to apply your uh, techniques and your templates and your plugins to other artists like Joe Bailey? Because I, I was one of the ones early on who initiated the idea of you have skills here that would apply to other people, not just your material. Are you so confident? Because I'm a big fan of your mixing and mastering and your general philosophy and, and the overall cleanliness and presentation of your recordings. Do you think you really could uh, produce other artists or is this because you're just so pure in your recording process from the very beginning? Well, I mean, I've done mixing for a few artists. I mean, I mixed uh, this band called Droid here out of Toronto. Uh, they, they've done a record that's really good. It's like, it's like Voivod meets Yes meets Rush kind of thing. I did mix the whole album, mastered it for them. Uh, there's another band called Freeways. I did the mastering for that. And they've done quite a few releases here and there. And I've done all their mastering for their vinyl and their CDs and stuff like that. Um, I have done it. I, I venture to say I could probably do a lot more of it, but I don't push that part of myself right now for one reason. I have a feeling if I did push it a little bit more, I would get more opportunities in business to do it. But then that would kind of eat into my time to release, you know, like seven albums a year. So, <laughs> uh, and, yeah. you know, I'd like to at least keep it up to at least five a year. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. Jokingly speaking, of course, but uh, you know, right now I'm enjoying making my own music and I'm enjoying mixing my own music and I'm really enjoying, you know, overseeing Joe's stuff now and being a part of his musical path now. So, Right now, I'm kind of happy with where I am. If it's if it comes up that somebody asked me, like uh, the guy who I mentioned that does the who was in that Droid band, he has another. Mm -hmm. He's like me. He does a lot of other things here and there, and uh, he has another project he just completed. And he's asked me about mixing it, mastering it for him. So I told him that I would do it. Uh, he hasn't told me when it is yet, but you know, I have to kind of finagle that into my schedule somehow. Okay. Okay. Very nice. All right. Well, you, you would be appalled at the nature of my tracks, but maybe some. Maybe someday I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll proposition you to 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 make sense of the chaos that I that I create. <laughs> sure. sure. Okay. We'll leave it at it. that. <laughs> so, Mark, along those um, lines, can you talk a little bit about like over the last what has it been? Six years? Seven years? Six years? I guess. Can you talk a little bit about you know? if and how your your workflow has evolved because workflow is such a key component to for lack of a better phrase cranking out five albums a year right um mm -hmm. and and in particular how how it may change at all for book three and i have a sort of um ulterior motive to lean towards the vocals because i feel like um the vocals on in the year 3073 book three may be the best uh, we've heard from Mark Anthony Kay thus far. Thank you. The workflow is important. Yes, I, I definitely agree. Uh, I've always had a sort of routine that I do as far as songwriting and recording. Uh, it always starts with a click track and me putting down some guide guitar or guide uh, piano or something. Uh, and I always complete it that way. I never start something, stop, and then start recording proper. I've, I've never done that. I never felt comfortable with that. I've always been one of those guys where I sit down and have a complete song, whether it's four minutes or 10 minutes of just either one guitar or a guitar and a keyboard going through so I can say, okay, here's verse, here's pre-chorus, here's a bridge, here's another little section. You know, just map it out. And once that's done, I start with the album proper, and it always starts with drums first to the guide stuff and then with the, the, this is something that's always kind of a big debater amongst engineers and producers i find is that my second thing after drums is i do rhythm guitars everybody's like what <laughs> you don't do bass next i'm like no i don't do bass next because for me a bass in this type of music can be very melodic and can be very adventurous why would i sit there and try to do bass against really nothing right except just drums Right, I'd rather have the proper guitars laid down because don't forget the guy guitars are just maybe just a chord strike here, a chord strike there, just so I have the idea of the chordings. Right, it may not be properly rhythmically played or 
there might be something on top of it, you know. So once I have those guitars done, then I do the bass. And then this is what's been different. And this might answer your question, Paul, about the vocals. Before, I used to do guitars, bass, keyboards, everything. And then I would get to vocals and leave the guitar solos for last, right? This time, I did drums, rhythm guitar, bass, vocals. I left all the keyboards, all the solos, all the acoustic guitar stuff for after I did the vocals because I wanted to give myself a lot more space. I wasn't, didn't want to have so much stuff in there crowding the spectrum already and give myself maybe a little bit more flexibility singing-wise. Hear what I'm doing a bit better because when you have, you know, 15 or 25 tracks of stuff already on the song and then you're going to sing on it, it's a bit crowded sometimes. And this way, I can also give myself a better vocal sound because there's not as much space covered up in there. I can find a nice compressor setting, you know, get a good vocal sound and just sing the vocals. And I think it, I think it helped this time. I concur. Um, I, I do think that, um, and, and not to say anything negative about your vocals previously, but when, when I, and, and I was somehow late to the game. Um, I think I saw one of your promos for the album, you know, release date. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that's weird. Normally, Mark has a single before this. And I went on to Bandcamp and I'm like, oh, he does have a single. <laughs> so, <laughs> somehow I missed it. And and so, you know, I downloaded it and it was like pretty late at night. I was sitting there in bed and I was like listening in my headphones. And I was like, damn, these vocals are, they're different. And and mm -hmm. and the, um, you know, I think Holy Shield is a you know, perfect to me. It just seems like it's much more rich. It's much, it's fuller. And maybe a little in the in a, more of an upper register, but the uh, the background vocals, like I, the treatment on on this record, I think were there are there more layers? Was that something that you purposely went for, or is that just maybe a natural evolution of of your recording and your your writing? Um, actually, I don't think there was more. I think there was maybe actually a little bit less. I think what okay. ended up happening this time around, though, was you know when you when you're when singing is not your first instrument. You're always kind of a little bit like, you know, eh, you're kind of not unsure of how far you should go. Now that I've been doing it for a while and I've had people saying that they've liked it, they like this stuff, they like the, you know, the melodies, they think the choruses are good. It kind of makes you kind of go, okay, maybe I can try that upper register a little bit more this time, you know? And it's funny, I do a, I do a live stream with this guy named Patrick. Uh, and we listen to, because he's an archivist, like a vinyl archivist, and he takes records cleans them up like absolutely spot spotless like these old records and we listen to them online okay and he got one of my records and he goes you know mark i really like this record because i like your upper voice and i don't know what it was but when i heard him say that to me that time it made me sit back and say you know what maybe i should try singing in a little bit of a higher toned voice and it it seemed to work and I found that I was able to project better because I had to kind of, you know, push for some of these notes, right? It, it just felt more comfortable. And when you sing higher, you push more. The voice can be, could, can be fuller. Sometimes when you get too high, it gets thinner, of course. But, you know, you can double track that and you can do all kinds of things. You can put a little bit more compression. You can, you know, EQ assist that a little bit as well, too. But I was happy with going in the upper registers and I felt comfortable with it, especially in the chorus of the Holy Shield. I felt it really worked out. I, mm. I agree. I think it worked out tremendously well. I think I heard on, on your other interview that you mic the acoustic guitars this time around. I think that sounds beautiful throughout. I think the acoustic guitars are sounding so sweet, but you know, if, if someone forced me to, you know, sum up book three in one words, I probably would say vocals. Um, really? That could just—I could be my bias because vocals is my primary instrument, so so yeah. I tend to to lock in there. But um, yeah, really well done, and I think that the um, it struck me on Holy Shield. It, it strikes me throughout uh, again on you know the chorus of God of Time and Design again. I'm just like, damn, like just kind of like oh, I love like, that it, chorus in God of Time and Design. That's yeah, it's <laughs> like a re it's like a resting. It, it, it's so good. So it's really exciting. Um, you know, to me as it, as it complements and like Holy Shield, you know, to me, it's just like, it's the perfect single to sort of announce this album and, 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 and start the, uh, and start the, the, at least the, 
the storyline of uh, of book three because mm-hmm. you know and again i mean this in the most greatest way possible it's that perfect combination that i love in project gemini when sort of like you know rush meets queensrike means means meets early metallica and it just kind of all comes together for me and and it's it's <laughs> quite delightful mark I mean, I definitely it, heard some rush in God of Time and Design and, and a couple of those intro riffs and whatnot. It was very good vibe. I mean, my rush influence is very obvious and I don't don't shy away from that at all. And I have no, you know, there's no negative in people saying that to me, I feel. I mean, because Rush to me are probably the greatest progressive rock band in my eyes, of course. Uh, but, you know, the, the influence is there. And I think one of the things that Rush or Alex Lifeson specifically has always kind of made me realize is that a great guitar solo doesn't have to have a thousand notes in it. It's more about feel and sound. And like one of my favorite solos on this whole album is actually the, the very first solo in uh, in my dreams, the opening guitar solo thing at the top there. I think I love the way that turned out with the whammy bar use and stuff like that. It wasn't anything crazy, but it added, especially when you put the delay on the the solo, just that sound of it. I was very happy with the way that turned out. Any any hmm. changes in the guitar or amplifier arsenal for uh, book three from what we've uh, uh, heard before? I've used the Les Paul, my uh, 2014 there, the 120th anniversary one. Nice. And uh, I used the jackson for the soloing because it has mm-hmm. the whammy bar the floyd on it and that's very mm-hmm. alex lifeson uh amplification wise it was a mix of uh the hughes and kepner amp that i have here uh some line six stuff and and i tried a couple of little uh i tried some plug-in stuff mainly on the clean stuff though not the distorted stuff mm-hmm. uh like there's a program a program called gtr3 that you can get from waves and just some fantastic uh, clean settings, like with you know compression and delay that can very much go back and forth, ping ponging, you know. And you can do stuff in mono, and you can set it up in stereo, and it's it's really good. I mean, it it really broadened the spectrum, and I'm sure you guys all know too. Like if you stumble upon a sound that pricks you in the ears, you're like, oh, I like I like that sound, and all of a sudden you're inspired to start writing around it, and that's mm-hmm. how sometimes songs start. I'd, I'd like to maybe just start at the beginning, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I'm fascinated with this idea of opening with with the instrumental man your stations. Now, obviously, we get the um, the the repeat of the ultimatum from from Admiral Worthington, and then we get the very stark reply, which sort of sets mm-hmm. the stage, right? And and so yeah. right out of the gate, you have. You know, we, we've got the two sides, we've set the table, and I think musically you're able to very wonderfully communicate the, the the stakes here and the tension. And it just immediately sucked me right into where we where we need to go. And I also like the fact that it, it, it also feels and, and I don't think that it is musically, but it feels very overture-ish in that there are a lot of different sections, we go to a lot of different places, but throughout all of that it, it has this this pace and this intensity that doesn't let up. It's it's a it's a spectacular way to um, open this. So, did that come about specifically, or was that one of those things where you were maybe kind of noodling around? and You're like, oh, hey, this feels kind of good, and I could do this. Or, I, I mean, <clears throat> how did that how did that wind up opening the the album? Well, I knew that I wanted to start it with an instrumental. Like you mentioned, Overture 2112, you know, that, that can't help but enter your mind uh, when you hear something like that. Uh, but mainly I wanted to do it that way because book two ended with the big ultimatum, you know, mm-hmm. by the Admiral. And everybody who got that album always said, you know, I wonder what's going to happen next. So they put on the record and the first thing they hear is that part. And now everybody's kind of waiting. Like, you know, it's like when you watch a TV show and, you know, the season opener, the next season starts and you want to hear what the what happened? What's what's the response? And you know, and I wanted to make the response as short and sweet as possible, which is just you know, you want them come and get them, yeah, you know. And basically, that sort of a short answer left it wide open to make it as crazy and as in, you know as 
uh, broad musically as I wanted to make this instrumental. And I really enjoyed doing this instrumental. Uh, you know, I added some things in there that I'd never done before as far as bass playing, like chords in there, like I to have some chording on the bass. Uh, and there's a keyboard that runs through most of it that you can hear if you really listen for it, but it doesn't overtake the whole thing where it's a sequencer mm -hmm. line. It's like, it's like this little back and forth sequencer thing that happens. And it really set the tempo of the whole thing. That was the whole thing that I wrote it around. And it, I just felt that it really set the stage. It's like when people hear it, I kind of get the feeling like, okay, they're, they're all running to their ships or they're running to their gun posts and they're running to prepare for what's going on. This is, this is the time when I have to, you know, get, grab my drink, sit down, get comfortable because after this is done, this four minutes or whatever it is, we're going to get into the meat of the story. And we do. Yeah. Right. But that's mm -hmm. what it kind mm -hmm. of is. It's like, I just envision people running to their ships, running to their posts and just preparing for what's to come. And that's how, well, that, that's what I see visually when i hear the, that music okay so mark i need to ask who is the voice of admiral worthington <laughs> oh okay great so admiral worthington actually uh is a guy named ken mills uh he's known as the Podfather. uh he's one of the main guys and the hosts of the podcast called podkist the probably the long it is in fact the longest running kiss podcast on the internet so and he's a man of many voices he can do Gene Simmons perfectly well. And, you know, I decided why not have him voice somebody because I had Joe doing, you know, all the alternate characters vocally, right? Uh, so I wanted to have somebody in there just as a character. So I asked him if he could do what he would envision as the two years away from retirement, bitter sort of general, but, but even more specific, somebody from the South of America, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, and and he, he nailed it pretty much the way I envisioned it. You know, whether it's an authentic, you know, accent, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not that well, you know, educated in accents, but it, it sounded pretty authentic to me. It, it was excellent. It was perfect. And it turned out well. And, and the responding voice is just me. Yeah. So, uh, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that the responding voice is you. Did you have fun just uttering that very short response? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did because you know I love movies just as much as the next guy. So you know you always see those kind of you know scenes in the movies or on television shows where you know they have the you know like or like Doctor Who where they have you know the the the, the, the companion is taken captive and you know they always come back with that close up shot on the guy like I will get them no matter what you know like that kind of you know approach yeah. to it. I figured, you know, why not just do something like that, you know, without making it sound too overly cheesy, you know? I, I, I think you, you sort of nailed it perfectly in terms of the, the menace and snark level sort of balanced mm. out there. Yeah, yeah. I, because like I said, I, I wanted it to, to sound like, you know, they were confident in their stance, but not make it sound too like, you know, like, da, 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 <laughs> come and get them, you know, like nothing like that, you know. I think in, in terms of the story, right, there there are a lot of, of levels of, of the different characters here. And so, yeah. you know, I think that that fits in very well, which actually, I'm guessing that we had, you had this recording of, of Admiral Worthington from the end of book two that we just repeated here. Mm -hmm. At the time that, that this soundbite was recorded, and, and I'm going to kind of skip ahead to, to the end of the story. Were you aware at as you were having that recorded and when you were writing book two, just how much of a complete bastard Worthington really was? Uh, no, because the funny thing is that the ending of the story, I had like several different ways I was thinking about ending it. And that's the one thing about the story that I was a little uncertain of is how to end it from those different options that I had. Because some of them were radically different mm. than the way I did end it. But it was all dependent on how did I want to leave the story? Because here, here's the thing. This is the last part. And I'm not going to come out two months and say, I was lying. Part four coming next year. You know, <laughs> No, it's, it's not going to be that. You know, But I, I wanted to also kind of leave it in that if I wanted to 
address it or go back to it and let's say four or five years from now or something you know I could kind of leave it in a way that it would be believable that there could be a continuance to it but I also leave it in a way that the, the listener can have his own ending figured out in his mind and just leave it like that you know basically if if you get you know an inspiration you, you have it it there now like I said, I've been having fun listening to this um, just because you have in certainly in in this third act, you present a lot of different angles. I mean, the characters mm-hmm. themselves have different levels of scheming and deviousness. And you can, you know, have I've been having arguments with myself as to who's, you know, less bad than the other guy. Um, but but now you bring in sort of the members of the Holy Shield and their perspective. You have sort of the the greater um, population of the Earth, you know, who end up essentially being collateral damage in all of this. And and so it it I think you you really did a very good job of sort of illustrating all the people who end up being caught between these two very strong and, in my mind, twisted personalities in, in the form of Worthington and um, Stanislav. So, Stanislav, yeah. 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 Now, you guys nailed it right on the head, and I must applaud you. Because, <laughs> honestly, this is exactly the kind of message I was trying to send. Mainly that the, the great question, who is good and who is bad and why? Like, why do you think Worthington would be bad? Why do you think Stanislav is bad? Why do you think Stanislav is good in this case? Like, I wanted those questions kind of addressed because on one hand, you can say, you know, Stanislav's an asshole. He take these, took these people who just came to, you know, check out the planet and see what happened. And because they stumbled across some stuff that they did, you know, in order to keep the planet or bringing the planet to the way it was, you know, was it right to hold on to them and not let them go? Was he doing something for the greater good of his people? Because what if he did let them go? What if they came back and, you know, arrested him and, you know, the, something, some catastrophe could happen to the planet with him being removed? But at the same time, you know, Worthington had all this, you know, had all these like sort of secondary agendas. You know, he had the device on his ship. He really wanted to try it, you know, on, a, on, a, on an actual populace. You know, there's the madman aspect of it, right? And then you have Commander Stevenson, who's trying to trying to convince the admiral, listen, he gave you he gave us back to you. Let's just get the hell out of here and leave things alone. No, he didn't want to do that, right? So basically, what I wanted to do was by the time the story was done, is to kind of question yourself, who do you think is the good guy and who's the bad guy in the story? You know, we had sort of touched on God of, of time and design, which really sort of brings all this together, right? Up up until then, I think a lot of the, the the characterization is maybe, you know, what we would have thought of. But in 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 God of Time and Design is really when Worthington just goes way over the deep end, right? And and yeah. and, and you're just like, whoa, this guy has got some issues. And ultimately he winds up falling or being skewered by his own sword, which is, you know, in some ways it it's appropriate, you know, because you're like, ah, well, the guy who we thought was the good guy, who actually turned out to be, you know, a, a planicidal maniac, got his mm-hmm. comeuppance, that's great. But then you're left with, you know, what did... Did Stanislav learn anything from all of this, or is he just going to go about doing all the things that he's been doing this whole time, you know, and and now he feels all puffed up on something that, you know, in in some regards maybe was a bit of a fluke. And so that's why I that's why I interpreted them as being both flawed and 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 what really gets me is is the sorry song because that really illustrates all this collateral damage. You know, I was wondering, you know, how much of 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 this story was sort of any any reflection of anything in in the real world and you had made mention of that earlier on in our discussion that that's, you know, that's the kind of stuff that that you like to communicate in your lyrics through these stories. So, yeah, I, I think it's I, I've really enjoyed kind of working around in the story like that. Yeah, I, I mean, the interesting thing about it is that you are saying, you know, what, did he learn anything from this? 
experience Stanislaw. Now, here's the thing that what I threw in at the end, I was happy that I threw in, and that adds another question about the character of these people, is here they go, they defend, they're defending themselves from this attack. They were able, miraculously, to stop this weapon being used and having it actually just, you know, explode itself within the ship, therefore causing the time st stop to happen within the ship. And them. So they're frozen in time. Okay? Now, you would have thought that these people would have been maybe merciful and, you know, put them out of their misery. But no, what did they do? The last singing part at the end of the song uh, is where they say they left the ship in orbit right. as a message for future people to come in. So what kind of yeah. people are these people that are going to do that? They would leave these people frozen up in orbit like that for the rest of their lives or for the rest of, you know, time. Or until I they think, feel, you know. I love it. I, I think it's get rid of it. I think it's genius. It's it's like right out of Superman, right? <laughs> they put the yeah. they put the criminals in the glass and let them live through the uh, the universe as a as a warning that says, "Don't fuck with us." Um, yeah. So and and to your point, Mark, which I never, you know, it's funny that you said that. Like, if you want to come back in five years, like everybody's still hanging out right there for you. You're, yeah, you're you're ready to go. Yeah, so and it's, it's kind of genius, dude. And at the and at the, and at the end of the very very end of the song, yes, you have that ask. you have that little thing at the end. The, the, the what system is overloading, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> the mastermind coming right. in, which is that which is that uh. system that operates uh, the sort of systems that keep the planet the way it was. Because if you remember, they stumbled upon the fact that this. You know, planet was originally dying from atmospheric decay and stuff like that. And they were always wondering, well, how did they overcome all these things? Well, the mastermind system is what keeps everything in check for them. But how does that mastermind system work? It's people that they deemed troublesome people or criminals or stuff like that that were, you know, put into this permanent stasis. And the power of their minds were all used to collectively power this mastermind to keep the orbiting uh, systems in check, the satellites that keep the atmosphere now operational, and basically keeping the world the paradise that it is. Now, of course, at the end of the whole song, you hear system overload, mastermind breakdown, and, you know, pretty much it's going to go offline in a minute. But there's another thing to keep in mind when you, when you end this story. What's to come for them, you know? Right, what happens when that system, you know, goes offline? That and, and yes. what are the implications there? So I, I, I like this. I like this because I, I was, I definitely missed that little nuance at the end. I was curious. Um, but because it was a minute, because uh, I knew in the, in the, during uh, God of Time and Design, they say it's going to blow in a minute. The time device is going to go in a minute. Yeah. So I was, I wasn't, I was unsure. But, but one of the things, like one of the things that I, you know, don't, just going back to this, you know, who's good, who's not good, who's evil, who's, you know, less evil, more evil, you know, in the song, Sorry, and I believe that that is uh, uh, Commander Stevenson, right? Mm -hmm. yep. The line, the line, if I could do this all over again, I would never look down on all of your ways. And, and the, the question that came to my mind was like, wow, after all of this, you know, do, does, you know, in a geopolitical sense, you know, does the, does the end justify the means, um, you know, how earth is, you know, conducted themselves in order to create this, this paradise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this well, helps because it seems like the chickens might be coming home to roost for Professor Stanislav. Well, well, I'm kind of trying to, I kind of wrote that from his personal view because yeah. he, here he is now, he, he's off this, he's off, you know, he's no longer captured. He's back with his people on the ship. And he's thinking to himself, if I would have just maybe just went and, you know, looked around at the planet, they were very hospitable at the beginning. They were letting us look around. They were all friendly. If me and the uh, lieutenant there wouldn't have went in and further investigated and poked our nose into stuff that maybe we shouldn't have, this would have ended completely different, differently. I'm so sorry things came to this, if I would have, you know, if I would have did things over again, I would have never looked down your ways. Maybe he would have came across and said, you know what? In retrospect, maybe he had to do these things 
it was either planet dies and everybody dies with it, or I put these few people or hundred people aside to have this system operational. And now the rest of the millions of people or billions of people on this planet can survive because of it. I thought that aspect of the story was, was really enjoyable. Like I said, all the different twists and turns. Yeah. Because before book three, it was pretty cut and dry, right? Yeah, you pretty much, they're like, okay, these guys are the guy, the bad guys and the good guys are coming to rescue. So uh, yeah, well done. Uh, Mark, was there ever a, a consideration of uh, adding in sort of a, a love ballad between uh, the commander and the lieutenant ever? No, I, I, I didn't. I was, you know, look, to say that I didn't think about it, to have it that way. Uh, sure, of course, it enters your mind, but I didn't want to do it because it just wasn't something that I write. It's not my style of lyrical writing mainly uh and plus i think that i kind of implied that there was there might be a little bit more going on between those two in book two strictly by how i wrote getaway and the mastermind because i mean he was obviously concerned enough for her to go back and get her because sometimes you know you know you know this just tells again about the character of a person he gets out escapes his lodging but instead of getting out of there and just getting you know his people to come down and to help and rescue her afterwards. No, he didn't leave without her. So that's got to tell you something right there. Yeah, yeah. I applaud your your decisions and your choices there. Um, excellent. The um the the other thing that I just wanted to to say is, you know, I think one of the evolutions that I notice in you know from book one to book three is that in book one there is a you know some of the the most action parts of the story like where the story moves and you find out the most is uh through instrumentals right and you're you're listening to the instrumental and you're reading what's happening in the story and i just i have to applaud in this in in book three how i think you've really elevated it to to the level where in war of worlds or sorry war of words and of God of time and design, it's it's playing out musically with with the characters and the and the vocals and the and the lyrics. So uh, yeah. you know, I applaud I applaud that. I I think it's um you know to me it elevates the the storytelling and um and and makes you know book three that much more satisfying. So I'm I'm glad to hear that because I mean I'm a big fan of concept directors as you know. I mean, there's so many fantastic concept directors out there. Operation Mind Crime. You know, 2112, you know, the, the storytelling is something that I enjoy. I mean, I, even getting back to just movies in general, like Lord of the Rings, I've always loved that whole movie and the whole storytelling of that. Either, you know, if to, to make the story more strong, you know, the music has to be able to complement the feeling of what you're supposed to be feeling in there. I mean, if, if, if it's supposed to be a sad part, you're not going to make it into some like double bass, you know, intense fury. You're going to maybe bring it down a little bit, you know introduce some acoustic guitar or something you know so that's exactly it i mean lyrics and music have to work hand in hand mark i'm kind of transported back over a decade when acquaintances came back from iraq not okay and i just have to ask were there any things along the line of this generation x journey from desert storm to iraq to afghanistan anything that permeated you or your canadian culture where our negotiations and our solutions have more consequences than what we realize. I'm sure there has been moments of it that probably trickled in, strictly because I, I'll never forget the first time Operation Desert Storm happened. I was at a bar uh, with my friends getting a gig booked, okay, at this bar in Brampton here. And right when we were at the bar talking to the club guy, they had the interruption saying that, you know, it had started that the Americans had moved in and blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, we, everything just kind of stopped at the bar. It was like, oh, shit, you know, like it's actually happening kind of thing. So those kind of memories are in my mind and have been. I mean, how can it not be? I mean, I think a great example of that is the gunfire part in between, you know, man your stations and the Holy Shield, that whole mm-hmm, sounding. Mm-hmm. Of the like, I mean, those sounds are something that, you know, us as people heard for a long time when the whole desert storm thing happened. Whenever they would cut to some news thing and you had the field operative and they're reporting live from, you know, wherever, that you'd always hear this gunfire in the background. And, you know, that kind of stuff can be very effective. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that that answers your question somewhat. Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, I remember, uh, or whatever, 
uh, educational movies about Vietnam, you hear those sounds in the background. It's very chilling as a kid. Yeah, but the the most telling experience that I had about the whole war and its after effects were when I toured with Piledriver, when we went to Europe. Because when we went to Europe, I remember we were told by a few people saying, if you're coming to Europe now, make sure you wear lots of stuff that have Canadian flags on it, you know, Canadian flag in your back patch, Canadian a flag of Canada on your T-shirt, because they warned us ahead of time that the whole approach to Americans in Europe, in certain parts of Europe, were not good because of all this stuff. Because they look, they they view America as you know sticking their nose in in parts of Europe, right? And when we went to Italy, especially. The, the, we were on the train and one guy came up to me and he saw I, I had a I was actually wearing my Toronto t-shirt he goes oh you're from Canada I go yeah he goes very nice he started talking about it and he goes I, I goes at first I thought you were maybe American and our singer he is American and he's like would that have been he wasn't American but he he had I think his girlfriend was from there or something and he goes mm-hmm. is there a problem with that he goes he goes we don't we don't like them too much here that's all how he left it at and later on, we we found out that it was because they viewed the whole Desert Storm thing as negative, and blah. you know, you know how it is. And I'm not saying that they're right or anything, but that was my biggest takeaway from the whole thing. It wasn't so much running into people that were affected by the war itself personally, but we right. did, you know, we did we did run into a few people like that. One guy at the airport in particular who had a bit of a PTSD, you know, going on. Sure, but. That's to be expected, I would think, after that kind of a situation. But I was just surprised by the effect on the populace in other places of the world because of that. It's interesting, and and you know, I think to to summarize all this again, Mark, I think you did a really good job of sort of bringing in the subtleties and flipping the mental switches to, as you said, make people ask the questions. I mean, if you're paying attention to the story, you know, I think you should wind up in the same spot. In in the in the press release for this, you mention v- a very conscious decision of wanting to sort of keep it keep book three internal. You didn't want to go with the with the mm-hmm. big flashy guest stars and everything else. So it's it's basically you with uh, with Joe Bailey and I apologize I forget the other bass player's name. David Donnelly. David Donnelly. So just very quickly, which bass players on which track? Like where do where do we have them? Obviously, we can pick out Joe's vocals, but but from the bass perspective, from the bass perspective, you have Joe on the Holy Shield, and you have him on uh, War of Words, and then the rest of it is me. David Donnelly did do a song that I wrote for this album, but didn't get included for this album mm. mainly because the the lyrics that I had for it kind of treaded over. Uh, parts that I had already done in Sorry. Now this song is going to appear in the popular follow-up release EP that I always do for these kind of things, Like much like uh, the extra songs that I released afterwards. Right. So that song will appear. Cool. Uh, But on this album, it's just Joe and myself. Okay. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, I was I was curious about that. Um, you know, obviously not having all of the uh, all of the materials that that will eventually go with this. That I was just I was curious. So so what was that decision like to to keep it sort of essentially you and Joe at this point? I mean, basically you augmented by Joe. Yeah. <clears throat> well, basically, I thought about doing it the same way again, having the same guys in there, and both and all of them were receptive. Uh, the difference this time was things were starting to loosen up as far as restrictions when I had started working on this record. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was already talk of, yes, going back on the road. Uh, also, Lee Pomeroy is part of ELO and a couple of other bands that are active too. So it became a, a matter of trying to find time when to do it for them. And then once I started having to go through you know, the hoops of trying to figure out when to get them in, I kind of thought to myself, you know what? This is a very important book in the story. This is the wrap-up. This is the final telling of what happens. And 
it almost just happened in my mind where I was like, you know what, I better just take full control of this because if they bring me back something that I don't feel is telling what I want to tell bass playing wise, I'd just rather do it myself knowing that I can translate what I want it to sound like without having to go back and forth six or seven times or whatever it would have to be, right? Not to say that it would take them that many takes to do what I would want, but you know what I mean? I, I, I almost found this book so important to myself that I wanted to have as much control of it over it as possible. Sure. I, you know, I, I think you had, um, you had a definite, a very clear vision of, of what this book needed to be for, to tell your story. So that makes perfect sense. I just, I, I, it was, it was interesting that you called that out explicitly in the press release um, around this. So yeah. I just wanted to ask about it. And Bravo, I think it fits with, you know, all the great, like cable miniseries, Sopranos, Boardwalk Empire. I'm sure there's <laughs> plenty of others. There's always like the middle seasons. Oh, where, Paul, like, you all didn't the, say the Expanse. The Expanse. Just watched <laughs> the last episode last night. Um, but all of those, the middle seasons always have the guest stars, you know, sort of yeah. in there. And yeah. and then they and then they you know purge them all out and then it's you know the main <laughs> cast at the end so i think it fits it fits very nicely and, and i i think uh as well played well good decision oh Thank i you. wanted to say that 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 the machine gun sound effects uh reminded me of the expanse i like the the notion in science fiction that not everything is death lasers i mean yeah, some yeah. of these some of these technologies are fanciful and maybe not even abiding by the laws of physics, but damn well, uh, we're going to have machine guns in space if we don't already. Yeah. And that's, that, that's almost more chilling to me. Yeah. yeah Cause well, those I mean, bullets just keep going. Yeah. Well, but they, see, here's the thing. The, the whole thing with making that sort of laser fire, it borders sometimes on sounding not only unbelievable, but just comical sometimes, you know, I mean, am I listening to like a 60s episode of Star Trek here? You know what I mean? I didn't want it to become <laughs> like that, you know? So, you know, the, I wanted to make, I wanted to at least have some elements of it familiar in that sense. You know, don't forget a lot of this fighting happened within the planet's atmosphere. It wasn't out in space, all of it. A lot of it was down here. They came mm -hmm. down with their ships and fought within the, uh, the atmosphere of the planet and they had to get down you know, close enough to the planet anyways, to implement their device. Amen. Thank you for, for uh, not um, challenging my suspension of disbelief and keeping me grounded to some sense of philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, overall, it sounds like we here at the Palaver are exceptionally uh, pleased and satisfied with, with book three. Mark Anthony mm -hmm. Kay, are you exceptionally satisfied and pleased with book three? Yeah, actually, I, I have to say I'm very happy with the way it all resolved. I mean, as a writer, you always hope that you can end these kind of things with some sort of logic to it and some sort of reaction from people in a good way or a positive, in a positive way or, or in a bad way. You know, I mean, I'd rather have some reaction and no reaction that to me is is most important i mean even if the reaction is Ugh, i didn't like the way that ended at least i got a reaction rather than them just going eh. I, the the kind of this this kind of eh, uh, re review is one that i don't like i'd rather you say it was good or it was shit you know <laughs> i think that it resolved well and again i, I like the way i resolved it because it can be it can be taken that it's done which in all aspects to me it is but again, if there's if there's ever that itch to look at this later, there's still a possible ways to do it. Well, we're we're very happy that you you know let us in sort of in the beginning here to to check out the full album, and uh, I personally very much look forward to the physical copies. Um, you know, mm -hmm. digital copies are fine, but I'm just old enough that I yeah. want something in my hand. <laughs> so do yeah. I. Yeah. yeah. So do I. Well, obviously, so, you so Mark, uh, recap the release schedule for uh, book three. So the 21st of January is going to be when the digital version of the album comes out in full. 
before that, I will start the pre-order of the CDs. Now, luckily, the CDs don't take nearly as long to get made as the vinyl does, but the vinyl will get done as well. I'll do a pre-order of that. And for the first time ever, there will be a picture disc version available ooh, of this ooh. album as well. Wow. So, mm. yeah, uh, keep in mind that this might take a little bit of time as well. Don't forget, these are done by the same fantastic woman who has done my uh, fifth anniversary uh, lace cut vinyl of the Ordinary Day album that got released not mm. long ago. Yep. Uh, so these are all going to be done the same way. So it's going to have that really fantastic quality sound to it, except you're going to have a picture disc of it this time. And I made sure that I went through this with her tooth and nail, that I wasn't going to be one of these things where, you know, we get it done. I send it to people and they're going to be like, what the hell? It's like, <laughs> because it's a picture disc, you know? Yeah. No, she told me that it's exceptionally well done. It sounds really good. You know, I don't know what kind of magic trick she did to do that, but, you know, I'm happy that she did. And again, it's going to be a limited thing that, so there won't be like, you know, tons of those available. There'll probably be like maybe between 10 and 20, I'd say. Neat. That's exciting. <laughs> Sweet. We haven't uh, we haven't touched on the ongoing collaboration between Project Gemini and James McCarthy. Maybe very quickly uh, touch yeah. on on the artwork for book three and how it you know obviously very very obviously ties into the story. But you know was it the same sort of of process again between you and James? James and I have a very good relationship as far as. You know, knowing what I what I want for my covers, uh, he's he told me himself that he really enjoys doing my album covers because it for him it's like free reign. And mm -hmm. I always tell him, I go, listen, you do what you think should be the cover. Basically, I just give him a title, and then he goes to it from there. The only thing that he wanted this time is he wanted a little bit more insight into the story just to kind of give it a little bit more detail for the cover. And the only thing I told him that I wanted him to include is I want you to include a ship visual in the cover this time, mm -hmm. you know, just to kind of give it that uh, feeling that something grandiose was going to happen in this story. So that was the only thing I told him that I needed a ship. I didn't even tell him what the ship had to look like or anything. I just needed a ship and the rest of it was up to him. And if you look at it, what I love that he's done on this is that he's included all of the album covers within this picture. Yeah, I, I did notice that. Yeah, that is cool. And I think that really works good as a conclusion for a three-part story. Very nice. So, <laughs> you know, we, we talked about the, the schedule for In the Year 3073, Book 3. What's after that for Reficle Records, Mark? My guess is it's... A whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we have uh, Joe Bailey's record coming out in March, right? Uh, th we're looking very forward to doing that. Uh, you know, Joe's a fantastic writer, and, and I, I always enjoy working with him, whether it's on Project Gemini stuff or even now when it's working on his own material. You know, it, it's it's definitely a pleasure to be involved in that stuff. Uh this time he decided to do a concept record oh. and you know, I'm guessing it might have something to do with all the stuff that he's had to do with me. Maybe he got inspired to do a concept record himself, but it is called devil in the white city. And uh, yeah, basically I think that he's already put up a post about this on our, all I put up on, on the Riffical record site and he put it up on his own site as well. Uh, but if memory serves me correctly, and just to make sure I am correct, I will double check my sources here. Uh, the story itself is basically about H.H. H. Holmes, the 19th century serial killer. And as Joe put it, this is my darkest, heaviest offering to date. So I guess if you're writing about a serial killer, it can't be, you know, all acoustic guitars and flutes, right? So uh, <laughs> after that... Uh, There'll be a Dark Monarchy record coming out. We're already working on book on the third album of that. I, I don't know why I said book. There's no book. Just album three for the Dark Monarchy. Uh, believe it or not, we already have, since we started deciding that we're going to do another record again, uh, we already have four songs written. The first one is already pretty much mapped out and pretty much recorded. It's like 
almost 11 minutes long. So it's going to be probably on the epic scale again. Um, so that's going to be coming out as well on, you know, a digital CD. Hopefully, I, I really want to get a vinyl of some of this Dark Monarchy stuff eventually as well. Uh, and then after that, there will be another Project Gemini album. And I want to try to get another Mark Anthony K and the Lower Third Collective done this year as well. Big agenda. So you're you're yeah. you're uh, you're really not pushing yourself this year with your goals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm not I'm not trying to go too overboard. It's giving myself a more relaxed schedule this year. You know? <laughs> uh, but also the other thing too that I'm going to be doing throughout, throughout this and this is throughout the year, like from January to December, is I'm going to be reissuing the whole Project Gemini catalog on picture disc in that form. So oh. an ordinary day. A brand new day on Picture Disc, Man of Science on Picture Disc, book one and book two as well. Very cool. Damn. Very, very nice. I uh, definitely look forward right. to all of that. Uh, yeah. any, anything else, gentlemen, as we finish up here? No, thanks, as always, Mark. It's, it's always great to get a preview, but it's always great to be able to talk with you and pick your brain about all this great stuff. Thanks, guys. I really enjoyed chatting with you guys. It's always fun, and, you know, it's always a... It's always a light time. It's something that I enjoy doing because, you know, I am sort of, you know, tied up with a lot of stuff here, and this is a good tension relief for it. Oh, well, good. Good, good. Glad, well, glad we can And you know what? Take, take care of Joe Bailey because, you know, while, while he's doing this uh, serial killer album, just re reel him back in. For <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that he's uh, on the straight and narrow there. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, All right. Good. Well, Mark, as always, we thank you for your time. Um, look forward to, you know, all of your your offerings, not only in the musical area, but obviously also on the uh, the Yes Music podcast and, and the KISS FAQs. And, um, you know, we look forward to, to talking to you throughout the year as we, uh, you know, keep up with all the things you got going on. So good luck, my friend. Thank you very much, gentlemen. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we look forward to your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. If you have any thoughts on Mark or any of his offerings, please let us know. You can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We are at ProgPala on all of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is ProgPala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Blaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcasts. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.